0: Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with your host me, Cece Suarez. Thanks for coming back. I appreciate ya. This week we're going to be going over, of course, yet another family annihilator case. And with this one, just like last episode, the alleged killer, unfortunately we have to say alleged, but the alleged killer is still on the run, just like our dude Robert Fisher. Now y'all had lots of theories with Robert Fisher, and I really appreciated y'all sharing those with me. So make sure you head over to the YouTube comment section or even on the Instagram under that post, down a rabbit hole podcast on Instagram, and then over on YouTube. It is just on my YouTube channel, CC Suarez. And make sure that you do share your theories. Where do you think he is? Why do you think he did it? All those types of things. But let's go ahead and get into today's case. This week, we will be discussing the case of the DuPont- Lagonas murders. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Down a Rabbit Hole podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Viewer discretion is advised. In April 2011, police dug up the back garden of the DuPont Lagonas family and made a shocking discovery. Agnes DuPont de Lagonas and her four children had been shot and their bodies buried under the back patio of their own home. And their father, Javier Dupont de Lagones, had disappeared. Javier, the prime suspect in the murders, obviously, had left his home and followed an easily traceable route to the southeastern region of France. But from there, the trail went cold. While some investigators believe that he had offed himself, no body was ever found. With no evidence as to Javier's current whereabouts, dead or alive, the reason behind the five gruesome murders largely remains a complete mystery. And like I said before, there are a lot, a lot of theories about this one. The case of the DuPont de Lagones murders remains one of France's most shocking and disturbing crimes. And in 2020, the case was the subject of an episode of Netflix's Unsolved Mysteries reboot. Did y'all watch that season? pretty crazy. I love that show. The Dupont de Lagonne's family were an old aristocratic family originally from southeastern France. Their ancestors include many famous people with complicated names that I'm not even going to try to pronounce because I am in a very uneducated American and I don't want to disrespect anyone in France or anyone in general, let's be honest, but I love France. I've been there. Very pretty. I'd say Brittany and Normandy are my favorites and they are absolutely gorgeous. And obviously I love Paris too, but Brittany and Normandy are probably my favorites. Hoping to go back next year. Hopefully I don't run into Javier. Now, as with all of these cases or really any true crime case at all, what you see on the outside, what the family portrays is completely different than what was actually happening after certain little tidbits here and there, after you find out what's really going on behind closed doors. And I think, I think this one specifically was just absolutely, Absolutely wild. It definitely reminds me of the Shannon Watts and Chris Watts case with their marriage, how on Facebook it looked like it was just perfect and she was just boss babing all over the place with the multi-level marketing company she was in. And they had financial freedom and you should join her team for that reason. And it's c- c- curing all of her ailments. But in reality, they were in massive amounts of debt, filed for bankruptcy, and their marriage was absolutely in shambles and just awful. And of course, the Dupont de Lagonas family is not an exception to that. Javier Pierre Marie Dupont de Lagonas, quite the regal name, was born January 1961. From everything I read about Javier's professional activities, it's so vague and gives me gives me big scam vibes, essentially. But he's described as a salesman who created several businesses, all of which had very little success. Uh, most of them catered to traveling salespeople and restaurant guests. Uh, From, again, what I read and it was, it all just smells of racketeering and money laundering. But of course, that's just my opinion. And as many of you know, on YouTube and my job essentially is to, you know, study scams, financial scams and pick up on these types of things and give my commentary on Unethical schemes and things like that on the internet. So from everything I was reading and everything I was seeing regarding his businesses, I was just like, wait a minute, something, something's not right here. One business that he had was called Cellref, That's all capital S E L R E F, and it was extra secretive and sketchy. For instance, according to the company's 2006 records, like their bookkeeping information or payroll information. The last data pertaining to the company was filed in the French Registry of Commerce on the 24th of February in 2004, and as the manager of the company, Javier hired six salespeople in 2003, and then he fired all of them shortly afterwards. And I'm sure accounting and tax loopholes are different in countries other than my own in the U.S., however, this raised a lot of red flags for me and makes me think even more that he was doing sketchy business and possibly laundering money or... Having the opening this businesses essentially as just like a shell company, not necessarily doing the business that was on the books. So very sketchy. Um, but from from the outside, it would really seem as though the DuPont de Lagona's family was very, you know, prominent and, you know, well known and they had a lot of money and, you know, his family, just generational wealth and trust fund baby vibes essentially. But the truth, as we will see, and as you've already heard, is completely different than what they put out there. Javier's wife, Agnes, was born in November of 1962 in the suburbs of Paris. She was an assistant at a Catholic school and described as being very religious, regularly attending mass with her children, and parishioners described her as being kind, but strict with the children. I thought it was very interesting that in my research of this, most of the little tidbits here and there regarding agnes weren't from you know friends or family it was just from parishioners of the church but i think that really i think that really shows that she spent most of her time at church i mean she worked at a catholic school and then she attended church a lot and it seems like that's kind of all she did in 2004 writing on a french online medical forum agnes described the difficulties that she was having with her husband they weren't having sex the romantic aspect of their relationship was completely gone he was very distant he didn't you know divulge really much to her. He handled everything financial with them and she had no say in it and she was very submissive to him. And she had stated that he had commented to her that a group death as a family would not be a catastrophe. Like what? Excuse me? Then again, and as I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing that I feel like I've kind of said that to my husband before, like at the end of the movie, the, the notebook, you know, they like die together. I've always said, I would not want to live without you. So if we like kind of passed together, that'd be great. However, this this is different. This is very different, obviously. Now, at the time of the murders, Javier and Agnes lived at 55 Boulevard, Robert Sherman. Schumann. Robert Schumann? Robert Sherman. You get it. In a modest house in the western suburbs of the city. This house is commonly known as, quote, the house of horrors. Not Horrors, not like the house of sluts, but the house of horrors. You get it. All right, now let's talk about the children Arthur, Thomas, Anne, and Benoit. I love that name, Benoit. Arthur was the oldest of the four children, and he was born in 1990 to another father. And he was two years old when Javier married his mother. So, what happened essentially was her and Agnes and Javier were together, and then they broke up, and I I believe Javier went off to college or he went and did some and then she was with someone, she got pregnant and she's a single mom and then Javier came back and I guess was very accepting of that, which is amazing. And then still still married um still married Agnes, which is wonderful and accepted not that it's, it sounds like I'm like making her out to be like damaged goods. I'm not. But then he accepted Arthur as his own child. And that's just wonderful. I love that. Arthur studied for a degree in IT roughly an hour away from the family's home. And he also worked at a pizzeria. And he was 20 years old at the time of his death. And then next in line is Thomas. He was born in 1992. And he was passionate about music and studied at the Catholic University. And he's described by his classmates, as ordinary and private. I never want to be, I never want to be described that way. Uh, He was 18 years old at the time of his death. And then there's Anne, the only girl born in 1994. She was described by her friends and relatives as a girl who shared her mother's same religious beliefs, and they said she was considerate and approachable. Her friends became really concerned for her when she stopped answering calls and she was regularly offline since that was very unlike her. Anne was only 16 years old at the time of her death. And then there's Benoit who was born in 1997 and he's obviously the youngest and he was an altar boy at the family's church and he was only 13 years old when this massacre took place. Now like I said there's many theories regarding this case but before we go over those I want to make sure that you have a timeline in place. Um, because there were a few times where I, going into this case, I really thought that I understood it completely and that I had, you know, exactly my theory, you know, of what happened. But then learning more and more about just how sketchy Javier was, um, there there are other theories that I I think do have some weight as well, other than just he killed his family, which I still do think is accurate, but we'll see. And please, like I said, let me know what y'all think as well. So in January. 2011, just three months prior to the murders, Javier's father, the Count Bernard Hubert de Pont de Lagones, passed away. So his dad's dead. And after his death, Javier went through his belongings and went to his apartment and presumably was looking for things of value. However, his father had also been struggling financially. So it really seems like the wealth and the name and and all that just meant, I don't want to say meant nothing, but really it seems like all they had was this name of value and really nothing else. So he thought that, that his dad had more and that was going to, you know, kind of save himself and save his family from financial ruin. But, you know, come to find out his dad had been really ill and essentially in poverty before he died. And the only thing that Javier had inherited from his father was a 22 gauge long rifle. And some say that it is not upsetting, but rather like out of the ordinary. It was just weird to put it casually. It was just weird how much interest that Javier was showing in this specific gun, especially when he had never shown any interest in guns previously. The following month, So in February, Javier obtained his gun license and began frequenting a shooting range just outside of the area he lived. And sometimes he would bring the boys along as well. Now, while taking interest in something, you know, that his father left him and that could have just been part of the grieving process for him and going to the shooting range, that might not have seemed sketchy. However, his behavior became much more suspicious the month after that because records show that he bought a silencer for the rifle in March. And then he followed that purchase, which with just the most red flag shopping spree ever. So in the weeks leading up to the DuPont de Lagones murders, he purchased cement, chalk lime, bullets, cleaning supplies, garbage bags, a spade, a shovel, and a trolley. So that's great. Um, if you don't know what chalk lime is it's it's what you put over bodies to make them not smell bad so it's just like covering up the smell of decay listen you it's one reason why you buy lime that's the only reason is because you have dead bodies somewhere and you want to hide the smell of them that's it that's the only reason and i'm not talking about lime like that you not the fruit not the citrus okay Now, weeks before the family's disappearance, Javier seemed to be preparing for a big move. Witnesses mentioned seeing Javier loading his things into his car the week before he vanished. He had also paid off some remaining debts as well, including final bills for his children's private schools, closing all accounts at the bank, and then the lease on the house as well had been terminated. And he put a note on the door, or rather on the mailbox, that said, please return all mail to sender. Thank you. If you were actually moving somewhere, why wouldn't you leave a forwarding address? So it's weird that he didn't do that. But then again, obviously, you don't want to, if you're going to murder your family, you're not going to run off and then be like, oh, hey, hey, mailman, send it to this address. This is where I'll be. And then on April 11th, the private school that Anne and Benoit attended received a note from Javier saying that he was pulling them out as the family was planning a sudden move to Australia, quote, for business. The school where Agnes worked received this similar message and the message indicated that Agnes intended to resign her position immediately due to her husband's job transfer. However, her boss was unable to reach her when she tried to follow up with her regarding the just out of nowhere departure. Now, one of the first signs of anything strange or rather the first red flag, other than obviously him purchasing a shovel and cement and something that could conceal (laughs) the smell of dead bodies. Um, But the first red flag or sign of anything weird was on April 1st when Arthur, remember the oldest one who worked at a pizzeria and was going to college about an hour away? He didn't show up to the restaurant where he worked to pick up his paycheck, which come on, any college kid is going to never miss that to pick up their paycheck. However, just two days later, the rest of the family had been seen out at a restaurant having a seemingly very happy dinner together which is weird. Now that evening, April 3rd, was the last time the two youngest children, Anne and Benoit had been seen alive. Their children didn't attend school the following day and they were supposedly sick. So I'm assuming that Javier called them out for being, or called the school rather, for being sick. Thomas, the second oldest child, had returned to school on that Monday, but he'd been called back home by his father who had said that there'd been a family emergency. He arrived back at the home that evening and was reportedly seen having dinner alone with his father at a restaurant on Monday. And that was on April 4th. And then on April 5th, he went to his friend's house and had, And his last communication to anyone, was a text sent to a friend on Tuesday evening. I would love to see what that text said. But I'm assuming it was nothing, you know, super out of the ordinary or important, because I couldn't find anything about it. Although there's some dispute over the last sighting of Agnes, Neighbors said that they saw her for sure on April 5th, even though some other neighbors said that they saw her outside walking her dog on the evening of April 7th. Most investigators placed her death to have occurred on the 5th though. So maybe people were just getting, getting that mixed up. Who knows? Maybe it was Javier in a wig. I guess we'll never know. So assuming that all every everyone in the family, except for Javier, obviously, is deceased by April 5th. About a week later on April 11th, Just a few days after the family's last sightings, Javier and Agnes's relatives received type letters, supposedly from Javier. However, they were unsigned and there were grammatical errors, which was really unlike him, especially since he seemed, you know, super OCD and wanting to keep this facade up of being a man of prominence and a just, you know, super well-educated person. The letters were over four pages long, they were strange, they were rambling. Javier explained that he had been a covert agent secretly working as a member of the United States DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Javier claimed the family was being moved to America to be placed in the witness protection program and that they would not be able to remain in contact and that his children would be unable to have any access to social media ever again. The thing about being put in the witness protection program, you don't get to tell any of your You don't get to tell anyone at all. No one gets to know where you go. It's just you and your family. That's it. And some of these letters also gave detailed instructions telling the family members specifically what to do with the DuPont de Lagones' family's possessions, including taking certain things to the dump and then which things should be given away and what things should be sold. Javier also explained that his car had been given to a family friend, a detail that proved to be untrue when the police traced it later. And it turns out that that same car had been abandoned outside of a hotel room in the southeast of France. But, and stay with me, because the most incriminating aspects came around in the middle of these letters, where Javier told them to stay away from the rubble on the back terrace. Real smooth, Javier. The letters also encouraged family members to keep up the story that Javier and the family had relocated to Australia for business just like the letters from the or two rather the employer and the kids' schools said too, um, saying that it was the quote official version of the story. Now a reason why I think he said that was so that if family members were actually believing this that they would think that they were protecting them by sticking with the Australia story and obviously not say that they were in America, or just really anything about any of the letters. Now, this whole time, since the house had been just super quiet, and I don't know if y'all have siblings or four children, even a house with two children is absolutely chaotic. Um, I am the youngest of four, and I know that there was just really never a silent moment in my house growing up, and the neighbors of the DuPont de Lagones family knew that something was up. They thought it was so strange that the house was essentially like closed up, like all the shutters were, um, you know, pulled down or closed, and it was just silence from that house. So they knew that, you know, no one was there or something was wrong because that's unusual. On April 13th, a neighbor reported her suspicions to the police. So she called them, said something was wrong, and she was asking that they go to the house and check on them. But of course... But, of course, the cops went there, and they didn't really see anything wrong. You know, some of the beds had been stripped of linens, and some pictures were missing. But the police just thought maybe, you know, they packed up and left voluntarily. Not that they had been murdered and, you know, put under a slab of cement under the under the back patio. Now, Agnes's family members did not accept that at all. So, after receiving those strange letters... Now, after receiving the weird letters essentially trying to convince them that they had left for the United States, they became even more suspicious, insisting that there's no way that she would have packed up the entire family and left without any words of farewell. And they continued to push the police and push them and push them and really try to essentially convince the police that something was really strange about the family's disappearance. The police returned time after time, and they visited the house six times, which is crazy. According to Les Parisian, I just sounded so dumb saying that in my podunk American accent, um, on April 21st, during the police's final visit to the house, the bodies of Agnes and the four children were finally found. Two graves, one containing the bodies of Agnes and Arthur and Benoit, and another where Thomas was buried separately. They were discovered under the patio in the back garden, which means the backyard. By then, it had almost been a full three weeks since Agnes and all of her three children had been seen. So, before anything is amiss, Javier has a three week head start. On April 22nd, an autopsy was performed on the bodies. Agnes, along with three of her children, Arthur, Anne, and Benoit, had been wrapped in blankets and buried in a single grave under the patio. It is assumed that Thomas was in a separate grave. Because he had been killed a day or two after his mother and siblings. Which is just so sad. And I think that proves, again, not again, but in general, I think that proves that that he didn't snap. He'd been planning this for a while. The bodies were buried with small religious icons next to them. Almost as though there had been some sort of little ceremony. The autopsy revealed that all the children had been drugged with sleeping pills. And then shot twice in the back of the head. With a twenty-two gauge long rifle. Agnes had also been shot twice, but there were no traces of drugs in her system. However, investigators noted that she had a sleep apnea machine, which had stopped sometime in the middle of the night, so she was most likely executed in her sleep. Despite shooting five people in the back of the head, there was no blood, no traces of blood at all anywhere in the house, which is an aspect of this case that a lot of people get hung up on and it is really it is really confusing like some people think that he maybe like suffocated her in her sleep instead of like giving her sleeping pills and maybe he like killed them with the sleeping pills and maybe they were like dead for a few days and then the the bud, the blood like coagulated or whatever that word is <laughs> and then like if you shoot like a body that's already dead there's not going to be like blood gushing out of it right because he's dead. That's just a little theory that's going around and that I saw on the interwebs. I have no clue how any of that works. I am not a investigator. Anyways, uh, the family had two pet Labradors who had been heard barking on the night of Tuesday, April 5th. Um, and they were also shot and buried, which, which is really messed up. And it's one of the reasons why I think that Javier Dupont de Lagones is even worse than Robert Fisher because he killed the dogs. Robert Fisher at least didn't kill his dog. Just horrible. Uh, But of course, Javier became the number one suspect because he was nowhere to be found. So the day after the bodies were found and the autopsies were done, an international arrest warrant was issued for Javier Dupont de Lagones. I feel like I have to say it like that. Um, By then, like I said, he had had a three-week head start. That is, that is insane. That's, listen, that's another thing he has on Robert Fisher because, and actually, that's one thing that each of them did. They gave themselves or they put little things in place in order to give themselves head starts. Obviously, if you listen to the Marty Bergen episode that I did, he, he did not give him a head start because he uh, killed himself right after he killed his entire family Uh, because I I believe he was having a a delusion and then came to and realized what he did and then just killed himself Um, which is just horrible horrible and sad all of it's sad but that's extra horrible Um, but John List he had a very large head start on the cops Um, he also took the pictures or like cut himself out of all the pictures too which is really weird so and Javier did that as well in this case so it like makes me think that not only had both of them been planning this and es- essentially for the same reasons allegedly because of financial ruin and not wanting to be embarrassed and all that but they gave themselves these head starts and it makes me wonder did did Javier you know look into John List did he you know see what he had done and how he had paid things off and um, told the teachers and the schools all these little things there are so many parallels between these two cases the John List case and uh, the DuPont de Lagones murders it is wild so hey maybe he found some inspiration from that which obviously is awful um, horrible John List was also featured in a show it was obviously America's Most Wanted not the Netflix show um, unsolved mysteries, but he was caught because of that. So I think with the Netflix show, they were really hoping that this would get, you know, a lot of resurgence. It clearly did. It got massive amounts of publicity. And I think they were hoping that they'd be able to find him, just like with John List. and he has not been found. He is still plot twist. He's still on the run. I just ruined that for you, sorry, but still not found. So one thing that I find is weird, interesting, strange, whatever word you want to use is the fact that the crime scene was, I mean, pretty well concealed. I mean, the police, I don't think, at least, I don't think they would have found the bodies unless, thank goodness for Agnes's family pushing and pushing and pushing them. But they had to go back six times to the house to finally find the bodies. So, and and no blood in place and everything cleaned up and making it just look like, y'all had left on vacation or left the country, or you moved or things like that, right? So he took so many steps before committing the crimes. But then after committing the crimes, he didn't try to, he didn't try to hide his, he didn't really try to cover his tracks at all. I mean, there's, there's a clear, there's a clear roadmap of, of his trip after the murders. But then, of course, it just goes cold because, and I'm not joking, he just walks into the mountains, which is wild, um, so nothing about his travels indicated that he was planning to go on the run. And investigators speculate that instead he intended to kill himself at the end of his trip. Um, I personally don't think so. And definitely let me know what you think. But I personally believe when or these family annihilators, if they are going to kill themselves, they're just going to do it. Like at like if you're killing your entire family, okay, now you're just going to kill yourself too in that same spot. I don't think he would have taken so many measures and so many steps to conceal the bodies and all of these things and close out everything if he was just going to walk into a mountain range and kill himself. And then the same with Robert Fisher as well. I don't think he would have done all of these things and all these extra measures if he was just going to go into the woods and kill himself. So just like John List, just started over so i do believe that john list did start over obviously we know that and then he was caught and put in prison and then i still believe that robert fisher is out there alive and well and living a different life and then i believe that javier is as well so police were easily able to track his last moves like i said and he had stayed in his home for a full week after the murders a full a full week that's almost as creepy as John List eating a sandwich next to his wife's dead body at the kitchen table and then like sleeping in the house after his entire family's dead in the ballroom. Except for his mom because he couldn't get her down the stairs. These men, I swear. I should look up and see if there's any uh, female family annihilators because seems like that's only middle-aged white men at this point. They'll get you. Watch out. Don't be scared. I'm sure your husband's a great guy. All right. So neighbors reported seeing him going in and out of the house on Friday April 8th. And he had made some posts online and sent emails to his family members from his home computer as well. And then he finally left his home on Monday, April 11th. And he was traveling south and his car was getting caught by the speed camera along the highway or road, whatever he was driving on, the entire time. So that night on Monday, April 11th, he checked into a hotel in the town of Blagnac, I'm sure I'm, again, butchering that name. Sorry about it. In the southwestern region of France. He stayed for one night before continuing his journey, moving east into Vaucluse. I'm just going to say everything with an accent so it sounds better. And staying. (laughs) And then he stayed there the next night, April 12th. And then he started to move east to Vaucluse. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. But of course, I'm just going to say everything with a horrible French accent so that it sounds better. And he stayed in the Arbor auberge 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 de Cassange, auberge de cassage oh i said it right i think if i have anyone in france listening to me, please let me know if i said that right um anyways he stayed there on april 12th but this time he checked in under a false name thinking maybe he saw on the news possibly that the bodies were found at this point And that's why he decided to use a fake name. I'm not sure, but that's my hypothesis. Um, Also, though, the point I made earlier comes into question. Why would you, you know, conceal anything at this point if you are just going to, like I said, walk into a mountain range and off yourself? Again, I don't think he was going to. I think he had an escape plan since he had been allegedly, or from what it looks like, planning this for four months, three months. Three months yeah three and a half months Javier continued traveling southeast the next day spending the night of April 13th at a hotel west of Talon now police found his car on the 22nd just the day after discovering the bodies oh just kidding correction then so okay so let me correct myself real quick so I got confused but again this just reiterates the fact that he used a fake name so that I assume their you know case would go cold of okay we don't know what what direction he's traveling in, um, because he, you know, was here and then he was here, then he was here, and then he used a fake name somewhere else. So we don't know where he is. Obviously, they found where he stayed, and were able to track his movements. But he he did that a full week. Bef- he used the fake name a full week before the bodies were even discovered. So I think that's very interesting. And again, that pushes me to believe even more that he's still alive and was not planning on unaliving himself. Continuing. Um, Now, the police were easily able to, like I said, track his travels through southern France following security cameras, the use of his credit cards at hotels, literally was using his credit cards, which is wild, and restaurants along the way. Javier was last seen on Thursday, April 14th, when a security camera in the parking lot showed him leaving a hotel. On the morning of Friday the 15th, Javier checked out of the hotel, abandoned his car, and disappeared carrying only the backpack on his back. Now it is said as well that it that he like looked up at one of the cameras in like a real creepy way, kind of like a like a catch me if you can type of way. Of course, I'm just making that up in my head. Not that he was seen, but like the catch me if you can thing. Some people have said that he was, you know, very, very like chauvinistic and cocky, essentially. And I don't know, I feel like he was kind of getting away with it. Now, the area that he was in, the place he was last seen, is surrounded by cliffs, mountains, and other crevices where it would have been easy for a body, not a person, but a body, um, to go undetected, meaning he could have walked in there and offed himself, like I said. Um, Again, I don't think that's true, though. Now, because nothing about Javier's behavior indicated that he was trying to hide from police or go on the run, investigators believe that he had really planned out everything and wanted to take like one last trip to the south of France where he had super happy memories before he went to commit suicide before he went to unalive himself somewhere in the surrounding region before he went to unalive himself somewhere in that area which is poetic I guess but personally I still don't think that's what happened I think he wanted to escape all of his money troubles I'm just going to go ahead and tell you my theory now (laughs) I know, I said I was going to wait for the end, but nope. So I personally think that he realized, listen, four kids is expensive, not only like on your finances, but on your mental state too. I don't know how my parents ever did it and are slightly sane till this day. However, I think that maybe he thought, of course, all speculation, all my own opinion. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just a girl with a microphone, right? However, this is my hypothesis. And you're going to listen to it. So I think personally that he realized after his father died because he was like counting on, because he was counting on possibly that money that he was going to inherit from his dad because it's like, all right, my dad is like well off. He's rich. You know, the generational wealth like was still good for him and all that. He's an important, you know, count, something like that, which is, it's just a title. It doesn't mean anything which his father even proved that you can be poor and still have like an important last name or an important title. Now he, what I think, like I said, all my own opinion. Now I think that what happened is that he was, like I said, waiting for that money, counting on that to really save him from his financial troubles. And then when he did not get anything and he went through his father's sad apartment and just realized, oh dear God, there's no way out of this. I'm gonna be like I'm gonna be so embarrassed. I'm humiliating my family and my legacy. And allegedly, a legacy was a legacy was really important to him, which is interesting, very interesting, um because it's like you just murdered your whole family. is legacy really that important to you? Um, but I think that he realized you know, he can't keep going and supporting five other people. And the only way out of this essentially is, death for them and for him them to start over but realistically it can only be him to start over because he can't just disappear an entire family and start over he can only disappear himself another theory that a lot of people had was that he because of the like sketchy businesses he had that people were coming after him and like forced him to kill his family or like because everything was cleaned up so well and people were thinking like it looked like a professional job Um people were saying that maybe he was like forced to do that or someone else did it and they like made him watch and he was being like held captive and then they essentially said like no we're not going to kill you you just have to disappear so and like they were going to handle it for him I don't know it's very very strange, but he did have connections in Florida. Don't worry. I've been keeping my eye out for him and Robert Fisher. I'll find him. Can't hide from me, which yes, they can. I have not found anyone. Um, but he had connections there. And then also in Australia, I obviously don't think he went to Australia cause he had mentioned it in the letters. Why would you mention somewhere that you were actually going to go off in and, and hide in? Um, but he could be in Florida or just in another part of the country, not this country, but a different country. Could have just crossed the border into a different country in Europe. Or Europa, as the locals say. Also, um, I got an email that my podcast is doing very well in Greece. So if you listen and you are in Greece, thanks. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, thanks. You're awesome. And I appreciate y'all's white buildings and the blue-ass water y'all have over there. And the really good food, too, from what I've heard. All right. Now, in late April... And keep in mind, the bodies were discovered on April 21st and he was last seen on a camera, rather the last footage we have of him, because we don't know if other people saw him, but the last footage we have of him and his last known whereabouts um, was on April 14th from the security camera in the hotel or in the parking lot of the hotel where he just walked off into the sunset, um, supposedly. Now in late April, so I'm assuming like, let's say April 28th right? Something like that. Um, Police began searching that entire area where he was last seen. So like a week or two later, a week and a half later after he was last seen there, they searched that, they searched the surrounding area for his body. So they assumed that he unalived himself. And after a excruciating search, they couldn't find anything. His body was never found and lead investigators believe that that whole trip might have been a red herring, to throw them off of his trail, and I believe that as well. Now, in July 2015, police thought that they possibly had, you know, gotten gotten some good luck when they received a photo, which originally had been sent to a journalist in the area where the house was, where the family was from. Um, when they received a photo that is assumed to be from Javier, and the photo was of. Arthur and Benoit, and it had a note on it that said, "I'm still alive," and that was written on the back, along with the date, July 11th, 2015, and then it had the name, Javier, Dupont de Lagonas, on it. However, investigators were never able to really track where the letter came from, and they remain skeptical that it even came from him. I don't think it did either. Like if you're if you've been missing for this long. Why, why would you tell them that you're still alive when they assume that, or most people assume that you have offed yourself? That's pretty silly. I don't think you would have done that. Now, more recently, there have been false sightings of Javier, as, as happens with every case where someone has been missing for forever, or when someone has been on the run forever. In 2008, police got a tip that said that Javier was hiding out in a monastery masquerading as a monk, which is, like, a way to hide in plain sight, I guess. But police raided the monastery. Oh, poor monks. And, of course, they didn't find anyone. In 2019, oh, that would make a really good movie, though, right? If he's just, like, hiding in plain sight. In 2019, a man believed to be Javier was arrested in Scotland. Although his fingerprints appeared to be a match, DNA testing proved that it was another case mistaken identity which is wild because like how do your fingerprints match and that's 2019 that that's not long ago that's what three years ago is it three years ago what year is it's 2022 yeah that's three years ago so technology is pretty crazy so how is it a fingerprint match but then your dna like what that's crazy um so again kind of shows some similarities with other cases that we've talked about like the Robert Fisher case where there was the guy in Canada that looked exactly like him and had you know a a gold tooth or a missing tooth in the place where he had a gold tooth and then the same scar on the back and looked exactly like him but then of course it's just a quote case of mistaken identity which that seems sketchy now I know I keep going back to the other cases that we've done really just Robert List and Robert William Fisher, the last one we did, but there are so many parallels, and I just have this creepy feeling that Javier, I'm chuckling because I'm uncomfortable. Y'all get it. I mean, uncomfortable. I'm an uncomfortable chuckler, but I need a shirt that says uncomfortable chuckler, but the thing is, is that it really seems like he could have possibly looked into these other ones and been like, oh, yeah. Like these guys got away with it because he did all this prep that both of them did as well. He got a head start like both of them did as well. He took the pictures like both of them did. Why would you take the pictures if you're just going to off yourself, right? And maybe he decided to kill the pups, unlike Robert Fisher did. But Robert Fisher happened in 2001. And then obviously John List happened years and years and years ago. And then Javier, all this happened in 2011. So I don't know. I find it very interesting and I have a sneaking suspicion or conspiracy theory essentially that he like studied other people that got away with it and kind of took ideas from them. Very strange. Or rather people who were never caught essentially because obviously John List was caught. So Let's go over what type of family annihilator we think that Javier was. Uh, now, in the last episode where we did Robert William Fisher, uh, I kind of realized after I posted it that I didn't even go over this. So, sorry about that. But I, th- I think personally, it's kind of obvious which one Robert William Fisher was. Uh, I think he was trying to um, punish his wife, essentially. Um, so, with the he would have been the self-righteous killer, who destroys the family to exact revenge upon the mother. Personally, I think so. Because it doesn't really seem like he cared about like economic status collapsing. Um, However, I do think that that's the type of killer that Javier was. So let's quickly go over this. So so as I stated in the first two episodes of this series, David Wilson of Birmingham City University divided these family annihilator cases into four groups. Anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, and the paranoid killer. Now, in this typography... The anomic killer and I'll put all this um, I'll put all this on the Instagram too along with pictures and everything just like I have the last few as well. Obviously with Marty Bergen there were like no pictures because that story was a century ago essentially. Um, okay, but in this typography, the anomic killer sees his family purely as a status symbol. When his economic status collapses, he sees them as a surplus to requirements. The disappointed killer seeks to punish the family for not living up to his ideals and family life. The self-righteous killer destroys the family to exact revenge upon the mother in an act that he blames on her. And then finally, the paranoid killer kills the family in what they imagine to be an attempt to protect them from something even worse. Now, that described, the last one describes John List, the paranoid killer, uh, because he wanted to save them from embarrassment and make sure that, you know, they didn't go on welfare and they went to heaven, essentially, because God knows, you know, being poor is worse than, you know, just dying. And just, right? You can't be poor. That's just the worst. Now, I think that Javier de Pont de Lagones is a mix between the Anomic killer, which we haven't really seen yet, but a mix between the anomic killer and the paranoid killer, because I think a lot of this has to do with, and really it depends on what theory we go with, but I think a lot of this has to do with the economic status. So his economic status absolutely collapsed. He had, he had almost no money at all. So that collapsed. He again possibly saw his family as a surplus, and he knew that he could only disappear himself and start over. And so then picking up, you know, some traits from the paranoid killer, he didn't want to, you know, have them embarrassed and have them be without him and and all that. So then therefore he killed them to save them from financial ruin. Yet he gets to go on and live, allegedly. So definitely let me know what type of killer you think that Javier is. What group do you think he falls into? The anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, or the paranoid killer? I would love to know your opinion about this case, your theories. What do you think? Where do you think he is? Um, I, of course, as I've said multiple times, I do think he's still out there. But then again, there are aspects of this where it's like, oh, it was a little bit too like clean of like of a murder, which again, he could have just cleaned up everything and could have just gotten like he had enough time. He was in the house for a while before he left, so he could have been cleaning that entire time. Um, or do you possibly think that it was, you know, done by someone else, and he was, you know, framed and had to had to leave the country? If he really did someone else wrong, and someone was out to get him, I don't think they would have just let him go. That's not that's not how any of this works. That's not how the mob works, or you know, the Illuminati. They just gonna off you too. Some people do think that he was a money launderer for some big some big bads, if you will. Um, that kind of goes into the theory that someone else did this and murdered his family and then just let him go, I guess. But again, why would you do that? Doesn't really make sense to me. I've watched enough Ozark. I know how this works. All right, friends. Why well, I've had a great time during this episode with you. This one was a doozy, um, but I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, if you have any other suggestions for series, series series uh, that you think I should do, definitely let me know. Um, I only have a few more on my list for the Family Annihilator series, and then we will be going off to another series, which I can't tell you what it is. It's a surprise. But again, I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Down a Rabbit Hole with CC Suarez. Please follow us on Instagram at Down a Rabbit Hole Podcast. And if you have any suggestions, anything you'd like to share, we can be contacted at down a rabbit Hole Podcast at gmail.com. All of that is linked in the show notes, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and then also in the description box on the CC Suarez YouTube channel as well. All sources for this episode, of course, are linked down below. If you do have a chance, please go ahead and rate and review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. The Down a Rabbit Hole podcast is produced, written, and researched by Chelsea Suarez and Tony Suarez executive producer, Wiggum Suarez. Also, as always, a huge thank you to our channel members on YouTube. Without you, this podcast would not even exist. So thank you so much to our YouTube channel members. If you would like to become a YouTube channel member, go ahead and go over to the CC Suarez YouTube channel and click the join button right next to the subscribe button. As always, we appreciate you. Please pay attention to red flags and stay spicy, and we'll see you in our next episode.